0: Chapter Two of Six Women and the Invasion by Gabrielle Yerta and Marguerite Yerta Malera. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by J. L. Baldwin. Chapter Two. First came a letter from my husband. He had written it in the first fever of war. The letter was a week late, and he marvelled at the splendid eagerness and union of France. 'Tis the world upside down,' he wrote. In my detachment out of twelve hundred seamen, not one was missing or drunk on getting to Cherbourg. As to myself, I am more decided than ever not to go to sea. I will see the Prussians face to face. Yesterday I had a talk with a field officer, and he promised to get me an interesting post. That is a good thing. I now depend only on him. I thought I saw him rubbing his hands with satisfaction. An interesting post. It means, doesn't it, to run into jeopardy to seek after perilous missions? Oh, daredevil! Oh, heart of stone! Wrapped up in his joy, he has no thought for the pangs of those whose hearts are hanging upon his life. Soon after, there arrived unexpectedly Madame Valen and Antoinette, whose journey had been greatly delayed by the mobilization. We had got but scanty news from Paris and listened in amazement to their descriptions of the capital, the fine frenzy of the soldiers leaving for the front, the plunder of German shops, and then in our turn told them the little that we had seen in the country. When our stories and greetings were finished, it was time to prepare rooms for the travellers. I will seize upon the occasion to give a short description of our dear old house. Notched like a saw, the gabled front presents a row of shutters, which, like grey eyelids, secure us from indiscreet looks to the right and the left two large iron gates always carefully closed lead one into a paved yard the other into a narrow road planted with trees the side of the house looking out on the high-walled garden throws off the reserve in which the front is shrouded windows and doors are always wide open to the air the sun and the creepers whose branches penetrate even the rooms themselves inside a passage separates the house into two parts the dining and the drawing-rooms on one side and on the other the bedrooms and the kitchen. Geneviève, Colette, and Madame Valaine have their rooms downstairs. Upstairs the attic has been cut up pleasantly into three. Outside, parallel with the house, a small building opens into the yard, containing a wash-house, a room, the small room, a coach-house, a stable, and the whole is topped by an attic. The house, this does not allow of discussion, is too small, or the family is too large, and Antoinette, who wanted a room to herself, declared, "'I will settle in the small room,' and we could not get it out of her head, although we enlarged with some complacency upon the dangers she might run alone by night. "'The walls are high, the doors strong, I am not afraid, and then there are the dogs. Indeed, Gracieuse and Percunet, the collies we dote on, live next door, and have sharp sets of teeth which they show to all intruders.' Grandmamma said Antoinette the next morning, last night about twelve. The proper time for crimes. I was startled out of my sleep. You were dreaming of the Germans. No, no, someone was in the attic above my room. There you are, a spy. Have you run him in? Without joking, Grandmamma, I heard steps quite clearly. Do you know that deserters are said to have escaped near Mornay? In process of time the deserters were proved to be dormice, but we thought the mistake amusing, and ever after called the attic the deserter's attic. Life went on, dull, spiritless, insignificant in Morney, immense, tremendous, and tragical beyond there in the north and the east. We longed for the postman the whole day long. He had few letters for us, but he still brought papers. We read them carefully, and we were none the wiser. We ought to have read between the lines, but we could not— I assure you that, during the end of August, we were deaf and blind. Our reason refused to believe the testimony of our senses. We saw thousands and thousands of people whom Belgium and the North had cast away, the Belgian army driven back from Flanders, the staff officers settle in Léon, and we never came to the right conclusion. In the case of floods, long before they are out, birds fly with hasty wings, beasts hurry away, and even snails climb up the trees. Less clever than the beasts of the field, we were unconscious of the threatening inundation, even when the country round us already lay under water, and floating wrecks were visible on all sides. One morning, at an early hour, we went with our arms full of provisions to the station where seven trains had stopped, crowded with refugees. In an instant the poor people had stripped us of our burden, and by way of thanks answered our anxious questions. For thirty-six hours they had been traveling, men, women, old people, children, invalids, crowded in the narrow carriages. And yet they were happy to get away, to escape, as they thought, from a nightmare. Furious bombardments, pitiless fights, burning villages, they had witnessed and told to us all the horrors of war. They had seen corpses in some places so thickly packed that they remained standing, and the sight haunted them as did the horrible smell of hundreds of dead bodies burning on funeral piles, or floating in long files down rivers of sinister aspect. For the first time we realized the actual atrocity of war, and with a shrinking of the heart we eagerly questioned the lieutenant who convoyed the train as to what had happened. Madam, I know nothing. I have been told an important battle is imminent. Belgium is in ruins. And we shall not go to Germany and impose upon the aggressors the law of retaliation? Of course we shall. Be patient. They shall rue it dearly. But when? The hordes that covered the roads were still more miserable than the travelers we had just seen. Day after day they trudged grimly along. We saw vehicles of all kinds, carriages, carts, wains drawn by horses, oxen, donkeys, and even dogs, loaded and overloaded with women, children, sick people, huddled together with old clothes, kitchen utensils, articles of food for the people, and straw for the animals. The men relieved the sorry jades by pushing or pulling, and on both sides of the road rolled a flood of ragamuffins. The women, with urchins hanging on to their skirts, bore babies in their arms. Boys and girls rode on bicycles, with great toil old and infirm people dragged along heaps of shapeless burdens, tools, saucepans, and the most unexpected objects of every kind. They went on without rest, and with only one wish, to get farther away and the very dogs followed, lolling their tongues out, their tails curled between their legs, with a feeling of the universal distress visible in their eyes. Some faces looked tragical, even desperate, but on most of them was impressed a gloomy resignation. The Prussians are coming, they had heard, and snatching some hastily made parcels, they had fled away with no other purpose than flight. They were but a distracted herd flying from a destroying wave. They possessed neither hearth nor home. All that they had was lost, burnt, plundered, and every one of them was but a cipher in the nameless crowd that besought the pity of France. This human torrent had its dregs. There was no excuse for those who were harsh to the fugitives, and they were plenty. But society was upset, and the worst elements came to the surface. Plunder-fed vagabonds, always to be met in public calamities, profited by the woes of others, filched from the rich, took toll even of the poor ransacked abandoned houses, and on their way back still managed to commit highway robbery and to steal purses. Thanks to these scoundrels, many honest and pitiful people were involved in the suspicion which wanderers often arouse. Fortunately, our people in Morny are trustful enough, and they did their best to assist the helpless and relieve the hungry. Even in the poorest houses the peasants deemed it a point of honor to share their food and lodging with the wanderers. Several nights running, we gave hospitality to unfortunate families, first to Belgians and then to people of the north, small manufacturers of the neighborhood of Forney. All told the same heart-rending stories, the order to evacuate, the house left ten minutes after, the bewildered flight on the road. Many had fled of their own free will, driven by the breath of terror the Prussians spread abroad. But all were wayworn, all talked of sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, and suffering alas said a young girl there are some still unhappier than we are graves have been dug by the wayside one woman has lost her mother another her baby and under their breath they whispered the nameless deeds the monstrous crimes committed by the germans their stories left us half incredulous and if terror seized upon our soul it was a far-off unselfish terror it did not occur to our minds that the tempest was lowering overhead We refused to believe that the dike over there had already given way, and that we ourselves might be overrun by the tumultuous flood of invasion. And then, on Wednesday, August 26, three Belgian officers announced that 12,000 Belgian soldiers, the remainder of an army 40,000 strong, would march through the village the next day at five. The excited people gathered in knots on the road long before the appointed time, and having nothing else to do let their tongues run on much news was exchanged some of which seemed insipid and some thrilling the journal de leon born with the war ceased to come out owing to postal difficulties this organ surely suffered from a secret blemish it was not born to live indifference no trains came from the north indeed and we had been told everything would go on miraculously well as soon as the mobilization was over astonishment the people of the terre rouge a remote quarter of morny persuaded that the Prussians were approaching, made a great slaughter of their plumpest pigs and poultry and devoured them hastily. It is so much gained, they wisely thought. What a droll idea! Hilarity! But, and this seemed odd, the ladies of the Red Cross, leaving the wounded in the lurch, scampered away last night. Shame upon them! Surely the straight-laced nurses would never be guilty of indiscretion, and yet they commit strange blunders, reprobation! The staff is established in Léon. Ah, ah, that is worthy of note. It will be interesting to see the town in its new aspect of headquarters. Interest. And here are the newspapers a neighbor has brought straight from Paris. Change of ministry? Formation of a Ministry of National Defense? Oh, oh, this is somewhat curious. They are hiding things from us. Anxiety. While the village was busy in discussion, time went on, and the Belgian army also. About seven, the boys that stood sentry over the road came on, shouting, Here they are! Here they are! They were coming indeed, white with dust, but still gallant-looking. First came lancers, then gunners, a few foot-soldiers, and again lancers. Here and there a spiked helmet topped a lance's point as a trophy, and the gunners, along with their guns, dragged a canteen carried off from the enemy. For three hours they went at a gallop, and for three hours we shouted our throats sore, and the whole village with us bravo long life to belgium success to the brave the soldiers still galloping answered at the top of their voice vive france down with germany hurrah for the french women and rushing forward we shook all the hands that were stretched toward us that night i think we shook twelve thousand hands as twelve thousand men went along we ran we were everywhere colette was madly imprudent and i wondered at her not being run over or crushed under the wheels of the cannons at last, about half-past ten, the village was silent, as we made our way home with hoarse voices and tired arms, thinking only of our beds. There will be time enough for serious politics tomorrow. The next day we went to Léon, and I. If we were uneasy and disquieted, where could we better calm our fears than in Léon? The official reports were vague, but rather encouraging, the officers optimistic. The civilians thought there was no room for hesitation, and unhesitatingly ran away. Many were already off. The cowards were frightened, like hares, by the shadow of their ears. Our scorn was greater even than their haste. We reserved our sympathies for the soldiers whose bright uniforms gave a pleasant liveliness to the town. We were less pleased with the checks put upon our movements. Passports had to be produced at every corner of the streets, and then after two hours waiting among a noisy and ill-smelling crowd to be signed in a guard-room. This was, if necessary incomprehensible very tiresome all the same we felt uneasy on our way home we were infringing the regulations that was as clear as day it is strictly forbidden to take any provisions out of the town the orders said but there is no use talking of obedience to hungry women and we had with what pains carried off from a greedy grocer rice sugar salt and other precious things that ran short in the country "'Fortunately we saw the mayor of Morny driving by, "'and from him we gratefully accepted a lift "'for the sake of our parcels. "'The evening was lovely, "'the country smiling in the setting sun. "'The harvest, somewhat delayed for want of men and horses, "'drew to its close, "'and beetroot promised a splendid crop. "'Everything spoke of peace and plenty. "'The mayor, with a word, broke the spell. "'From this place,' he said, "'pointing at a hill disgraced by the presence of a factory,' the cannon was audible yesterday. "'It is mere hearsay,' he added, daunted by our protestations, and we all came to the conclusion that the hearers had but singing in their ears. Thus, at the side of the mare, we made a sensational entrance into Morny. At home, they had taken in two Belgian soldiers whose lucky star had led to our door. In great haste, the family had prepared a huge omelette, a solid beefsteak, a comfortable salad. Then, to pay their share, they had talked. Alas, what they said was not encouraging. We have been beaten. The Germans are gaining ground. They knew nothing more. The next day we had another Belgian to feed. Our ward, Pierrot, met him in the street in quest of a dinner, and showing him the way had brought the soldier into the dining-room. Our new guest told us frightful stories and talked of defeat and high treason. But on the other hand, he boasted of such high deeds he had performed himself that we listened wholly unmoved to his wondrous tales. Defeat, treason, we had no fear on that score. In spite of a vague alarm, we apprehended no real danger. Some uneasiness stole first over our minds when we got a telegram from Madame Pras claiming Pierrot back. It was the 30th of August. We ran to the station and were there told with the greatest serenity, "'There is no train going to Léon tonight. "'Tomorrow will do, then. There is no hurry.' We thought no more of the journey, for the Major's dinner took place that very evening. All that wore a uniform were sure to arouse an admiring interest. The soldiers were overwhelmed with love and adulation. A little more, and we could have prostrated ourselves at their feet. It was but right. What sacrifices could we make to match what they gave us—their strength, their life, their youth? And they were France herself—they were ourselves. Every woman who spoiled a trooper said to herself, "'My son, too, is a soldier.' On this Sunday, then, the village was overjoyed to hear that soldiers would be billeted on it. A good thing. We shall see some officers and perhaps hear some news. And we kept our eyes open, ready to snap up the first piece of gold lace that would come on. The said lace happened to be on the sleeve of a surgeon-major, who, to our anxious questions, gave us an evasive answer and seized time by the forelock. "'Oh, madame,' he said to my mother-in-law, "'shall I dare ask you?' "'Dare ask it, sir?' "'To lend us your kitchen and your dining-room. "'We are ten surgeon-majors, and we have nowhere to dine. "'Certainly my house is at your disposal. "'But say nothing about it. "'It is not here that our quarters are.' "'His companion, a giddy-brained youth, "'fresh from the schools, who hitherto had not opened his mouth, "'cried out, "'We will say that the ladies are relations of ours. "'Mademoiselle will not refuse to declare I am her cousin.' "'The haughty Antoinette did not like the joke "'and snubbed the joker.' Then Asclepius's disciples went away to return speedily. We exchanged a great many low bows, and the ceremony performed left the gentlemen for fear we should disturb them. They seemed to want rest, judging from their worn-out faces. We heard that one of our guests who had just fallen into a doze was the famous Professor X, and we beheld his tired face with some respect. In a clandestine meeting we had decided, we shall have supper in the garden. We will drink a cup of milk and eat bread and butter." We are not of those who believe in the necessity of dining. Of course, out of respect for our stomachs, we give them tolerable cheer, but occasionally we are content with a cup of cocoa and a slice of bread. And that night we had other fish to fry than to feed ourselves. Besides, we were unlucky enough to have no maids at all at that time. The only one we had left had refused to stay any longer in a place likely to be invaded. Our modest meal over, we ran into the house. In the kitchen, the dinner was getting on well. A savoury smell rose from the saucepans. A giant scullion was helping a cook, who pontified solemnly. The strange cook hid beneath his apron, assumed for the occasion, a uniform covered all over with decorations. Beneath the trade of cook, he also assumed for the occasion, he hid that of an engineer in civil life, in military life that of an hospital orderly. He was tall, spare, pale, red-haired, and he looked unalterably calm. "'Where are the Germans?' we asked the engineer cook. Will they come here? What ought we to do? He feared the Prussians would reach Morny, and in his opinion we had better avoid the meeting. Are we to run away then and wander about like the Belgians, or shall we take a ticket to Marseille, Algiers, or Timbuktu? Is that far enough? Our interlocutor stilled our impatience with the slow sounds of his voice. Really, now, he had a castle. In the air? No, but in Brittany, where his sister would be delighted to receive us. And the head cook, while draining dry his fried potatoes gave us the address of his mansion in brittany after the advice of the kitchen we wanted the counsels of the dining room a few sleepy heads had already gone to bed among others the celebrated physician and the giddy-brained youth who had grown extremely serious the remainder of the learned party were chatting together amid the smoke of tobacco and the flowers on the table without more ado we all went in and asked the usual questions "'Where are the Germans? Will they come here? What ought we to do?' A long conversation ensued. Alas, our guests were as pessimistic as could be. The head-major, a small man, thick-set, energetic, and dark, did not hide from us the truth that we should see the Germans, and still worse, that they would lay siege to Paris. Grief and indignation prevented us from looking at our own situation. We thought but of the country itself.' why genevieve cried out you think the germans will conquer us you are expecting another seventy never never the germans will be beaten should they go to marseilles and bordeaux i should still believe in their final defeat but the moment is a critical one we have been beaten it is a certain fact there is no use being blind to it and the germans will go to paris a clear voice rose at the end of the table you talk as if we were lost colette said we are retreating "'It may be a wise measure. "'Our men are ready for anything. "'The Germans in Paris? "'But you do not know our soldiers.' "'Very good,' said the neighbour of Colette, "'a tall, fair-haired man. "'Do try to convince my friends. "'These ten days I have dinned the same arguments "'into their ears. "'But you must excuse our despondency. "'Weariness is the cause of it. "'These last three weeks we have hardly slept. "'And what do we see of war? "'Nothing that is not horrible and disheartening. "'Battlefields after the fight.' The dead, the wounded, the stragglers, nothing that elevates and idealizes men. So the talk went on, and the dining-room rang with the praises the doctors bestowed on their heroic patients. They spoke chiefly of the terrible weariness of the men. They are overcome with sleep, they said, and to such an extent that they don't wake up even when we dress their wounds. A few minutes after, Colette said to her neighbor, It is delightful to discuss with you. At least you always agree with me. We all burst out laughing, and at this fit of gaiety the majors went softly out, for fear they would wake up the officers and the refugees whom we were sheltering. End of chapter 2